Welcome to Pioneering Politicos. Today's guest is Sam Wolf, a former member of Representative Ted Liu's Teen Advisory Council, a former teen fellow at the Jewish Center for Justice, and a rising freshman at UCLA. Hey Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hey Jack, thanks for having me. Thank you for being the first guest, or to use the lingo of the podcast, our first pioneering Politico. Yeah, that's what I'm here for, and I'm yeah. ready. All right, so I'll start off with a pretty broad question. What sparked your passion for politics? I probably have to say uh, a lot of the gun violence that happened uh, while there was a lot of media attention back in, I have to say, middle school, coming into my freshman year of high school. Uh, there was, I, I remember most vividly the Parkland shooting uh, where a lot of the students became uh, very active politically just from that too. And that uh, really sparked my interest uh, in the sense that I learned about how it, it was an issue we can solve and it was an issue that there was legislation, you know, waiting to happen. Um, and it really helped me start to learn about uh, how Congress works and uh, just the how our political system works. And then I'd say secondly, um, the 2016 election too, in, in a large part. And I think uh, a lot of uh, teenagers really got into politics with that too, because it was just such a, a, a momentous election and such a such an important moment, probably in our country's history. Um, so that's those two things really were the things that really sparked it. And of course, I've uh, changed a lot of my views along the way, but I have to say, those two moments were probably the biggest ones. That was definitely empowering and inspiring to see fellow teens make legitimate change and get a voice and a platform. And then, of course, the 2016 election, whether or not you're anti-Trump, pro-Trump, that's a very galvanizing election because it was so polarized and everybody was talking about it. At least it was the first election that you and I probably ever talked about because it was our first time ever thinking about politics, reading articles, and then actually voicing our own opinions. So that was definitely a momentous election for at least most of Gen Z, if not all of Gen Z. Absolutely. I definitely agree. The next question is, what was it like serving as a teen advisor for Representative Ted Lieu? It was great. It was a great opportunity to really start learning more about politics, uh, really start learning more about uh, loads of issues in which I'd never really researched before. So uh, so yeah, when I got on the council, a lot of what we did was uh, we researched, we, uh, we re researched legislation, um, which the congressman wasn't aware of, or that uh, the congressman was aware of, but they, uh, you know, didn't know if they should sign on to yet. So and then we would go into meetings and we would discuss that legislation and we'd see whether uh, he should sign on onto it or not. Um, so it was a really great experience and I'm glad I did it. So I guess based on that research, are there any policies that you are especially proud of that maybe Ted Lu supported because of that research that you did? Um, I can't think of many on the top of my head because to be honest, there, there were a lot of uh, bills uh, that he co-sponsored from it. I mean, each year, it could have been like 30 bills each year that we got him to co-sponsor. Um, just because they're, I mean, 
there are thousands of bills uh, each session. Uh, and no one congressman can keep track of all of them. And there's going to be things that slip through the cracks of, uh, of their staffs. So um, I'm just reading some off a list. I mean, we have one on gun violence restraining orders. We have some on um, tribal access to health care. Um, there's a, like a justice for juveniles of, I think, domestic abuse. So there's a lot of stuff in there that I don't, that a lot of it was the congressman wasn't aware of or uh, that he was aware of and they just didn't know if they should sign on to it yet because maybe they didn't know anything about the technicalities or they just didn't know if it had the, the movement to actually make it through. Well, that's incredible that you had such a direct impact on actual policymaking. I know myself and probably others in high school were so caught up in high school politics, then you're out here actually talking with a congressman, part of a congressional staff. So that takes it to a whole nother level of awareness of politics and actual participation in politics. So that's incredibly impressive. I guess this is a step back, but how did you actually get your role for Congressman Ted Lieu? Yeah, so it was just a pretty standard application. I learned about it uh, through my freshman history teacher, Miss Garrett. Um, and I did an application. I wrote an essay. Uh, I got letters of recommendation from, I think, my history teacher and my rabbi. Um, and then I, oh, and, and I had to make a resume for the first time. I sent it in. I hope for the best and maybe, uh, maybe just a little bit of luck and I got on. So it was just, you know, one of those things where you took the opportunity and fortunately I got it. I'm kind of getting bad flashbacks from the college application process from that. <laughs> Couldn't have yeah. been very fun. <laughs> <laughs> you served as, as a teen fellow for the Jewish Center for Justice. So I'm curious, what is the mission for the Jewish Center for Justice? And what exactly does a teen fellow do? So, okay. So the Jewish Center for Justice, I'd say, is an organization that advocates for social and economic justice policy. It's all coming from the top of my head, by the way, not looking at anything um, uh, from from a, a reformed Jewish perspective. So that means a, a lot of what we do um, is we do a lot of phone calls to uh, national and state legislatures and maybe sometimes local like city councils and stuff. Um, and a lot of this is on bills. Um, it doesn't have to be related to Judaism. It's most of the time not. It's a lot of time um, on you know, economic policy, like, um, or most of the time, more social policy, like uh, right to abortions and, you know, a lot of stuff like LGBTQ rights and climate change and all that stuff, you know, it's kind of like a, a big tent uh, type of thing where it's not very focused on one issue, but a lot of them. Um, and then we did we do a lot of research. Um, and from that research, we write uh, articles for the JCJ the Jewish Center for Justice JCJ blog. Um, it shows up there and it's just a, a good thing to kind of spread our message out and into the Jewish community. So we, we kind of get a sense of uh, what other Jewish organizations are saying and we tell them, you know, what, what especially young people in the Jewish community are thinking. So I think it was great work. So speaking of your articles, you wrote about two distinct topics, immigration and homelessness. So I kind of want to take a deeper dive into those issues. 
In one of your articles, you mentioned your family's history of fleeing from the Nazis during the Second World War. How has this influenced your current position on immigration? Sure. So uh, my great-grandparents, Ferenc and Aranka, um, migrated from Hungary uh, to, I think one of them went to New York and one of them went to Detroit. Um, and they like to say, I think it was on one of the last uh, boats from Europe to America, because at that time, America really cut off uh, the amount of Jewish refugees that could come in from Europe uh, at the time. And yeah, it was one of the last boats that they could come in on. So I, I have to think, you know, uh, what if, what if it, what if they were just a little late? No, I wouldn't exist. I think a lot of people uh, got the, the short end of, of the, of a stick, you know? So I think that has affected me by uh, really knowing the importance of having empathy for refugees. You know, um, it's not so much Jewish people anymore, but people from the Middle East and people from uh, war-torn parts of Africa and, uh, you know, people impoverished uh, in, in really poor countries all over the world. They need somewhere to go. And, you know, if we're just playing politics and, in our home countries that are relative, and we're all, most of us are relatively well off, I think there's a really great importance uh, in letting a lot of people in, doing in America, doing its part to let people in and figuring out, you know, how can we sufficiently help people? How can we deal with the cost of it? Um, and in doing that, I think we set uh, a great example for the world in that, you know, America is doing its part now you guys have to do your part too, you know? And unfortunately, I don't think America is doing its part nowadays. We saw that with the Trump administration setting a record low refugee cap. Um, I can't remember it. It was in uh, below, like, I think maybe 20,000 or something. And Biden has, has raised it a little bit, but to my standards, I don't, I don't think uh, enough at all. Um, so I think really America and the world needs to do a better job of having more empathy for refugees and that uh, as a Jew, I think the Jewish community needs to just remember that a lot of these people were just like us just decades ago. Yeah. And I think your own family story almost is a perfect example of how immigration works. I mean, you're, I believe you mentioned before to me, that your uncle or maybe your great uncle became an FBI agent, or maybe it was your grandpa, but he ended up serving the country that let him in. And by saying let him in, it was just barely let him in. Like you mentioned, uh, FDR quickly closed off that uh, avenue for Jewish immigrants to come into America. So I think your family story is a beautiful example of how in one generation, an immigrant be can become an American in not just become an American, serve our country and actually better our country. And I mean, I think that's the whole ideal of us being a melting pot. We let people in and those people who we let in improve our country and we all benefit from that. They do, we do, and it makes us all better as Americans. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think a lot of the fears we have, or I don't wanna uh, say we, I think there are some people who are often afraid of uh, Muslims from other countries coming in. 
Well, I actually found, I think I wrote an article that a lot of people were scared of letting Jewish refugees in because they thought they were Nazi spies or, or there's just, you know, as there's always been anti-Semitism in general. I think we have to put uh, a lot of fears aside and just have empathy. So yeah, yeah I absolutely I, agree. I agree with that too. I think empathy is something that we seem to lack in our modern political climate, but it's something that is so important because we need to be able to empathize with the other party, with foreign nations, with asylum seekers. I mean, empathy, if it was infused back into politics would make such a difference. I guess moving on or kind of moving on, but uh, so one of my main goals is trying to find common ground and showing that we're more common than we think we are, or at least there's certain issues that can unite us. So do you think there is a middle ground between the right's focus on border security and the left's focus on reforming the immigration system? Uh, sure, sure. Um, let me tell you why. I think that um, I'm, I'm against uh, just alone a sense of security. I don't think it's fair to people on the, around the world uh, to say, we're going to put up a border wall. We really think it's going to make us safe when in fact it doesn't. And it only makes people uh, in surrounding countries less safe. So, uh, but I, I'm for security. I think uh, people in America have a right to security to, to have, they have a right to feel safe. And, but I also think people around the world have a right to feel safe. So I think we have to stop looking at uh, immigration from uh, like a nationalist perspective. You know, we have to look at, at, at it from uh, an international perspective and we, we have to really seek out the security of everyone and not just uh, people in America. Um, so with that, you know, we, we have to stop wanting to militarizing our border. Does that make us safe? Maybe, but it certainly doesn't make immigrants more safe. So the, so how do we make both uh, ourselves safe from, from uh, violence potentially coming across the border? And how do we keep people around the world safe from uh, violence coming uh, from their own countries in which they're fleeing to our country? So I think we have to look at it from an international perspective say we have to uh, really create or not, you know, ourselves create stability, but help uh, these, a lot of these war-torn countries and these impoverished countries uh, create stability and uh, create more prosperity, um, not by invading them, uh, as unfortunately, I think uh, we might've done a little too much in the past, um, but by uh, lending a hand and by providing more aid and by also taking a step back. Um, it's not, I'm not saying it's an easy thing, um, but it's definitely the right thing. So we need both. We need uh, reform of our immigration system too. Obviously we need to let, I think, in my opinion, I think we should let more people in. Um, we, we can't send back asylum seekers who are fleeing violence, um, but we also have to help countries deal with this violence so it it just doesn't create a, a spiral of people fleeing their home countries and, and coming to ours so absolutely i think there needs to be security but uh we can't just throw our hands up and say we want to lock ourselves 
out from the rest of the world because that's i don't think uh, a fair solution to anyone i completely agree with you and if it's not just in a moral and ethical reason to have wanting to have immigration or the need to allow asylum seekers to move to the united states i think it's also just a foreign policy reason as well because i mean we're talking about the image of america if we sit here denying people and force people to go back to war-torn countries what does that say about america are we really the land of the free are we really the land of the american dream are we just nationalists who only care about americans i mean right. i think that hurts our image abroad and it it hurts our ability to make allies in the future absolutely absolutely i completely agree i think uh we need to do more to help people in their own countries and and we need to have empathy like i said before um yeah so yeah that's my take i think okay so this next question is about another article that you wrote so you argue that la's housing crisis must be addressed are there any policies that you think could solve the problem sure um so i think that first of all i think we have to recognize that uh, LA and California are doing something. It's not like we aren't doing anything. And I think it's a little too much of the wrong thing. I think we're addressing homelessness in the fact that uh, we, we view it in the sense that we think it's not possible to solve it. And that uh, when, uh, when someone sees a homeless man or a homeless woman, uh, they call the police and the police move them across the road or to a different part of town. That's, I mean, that's not uh, a real solution. Um, it's, it's not fair to the homeless people and it's, it's not fair to the people that are, are on that other side of town, you know? Um, so I think one of the solutions I argued for in that article um, was allowing uh, city councils uh, the opportunity to uh, get rid of single family zoning in in a lot of neighborhoods. And what single family zoning is, I believe, is not allowing uh, uh, a, a lot of complexes in, in, uh, in a single plot of land. So you can only build uh, like just a single family home. You can't build a duplex, you can't build an apartment building. Um, and you'll find this in a lot of suburban neighborhoods and what this will do is it'll lock out first of all it'll lock out a lot of low-income people from entering these neighborhoods and it will uh just lessen the amount of already af affordable housing we have because single family homes are a lot more expensive than duplexes and they're a, a ton more expensive than uh apartments so I think that's it's not the only solution, um, but it's and there's not just one solution to solve homelessness, obviously, but it's something that will, I think, getting getting rid of it in a lot of places will uh, help expand the amount of affordable housing in a lot of areas. Um, so yeah, and that's one of the things, and and of course I think there are other <clears throat> things we can do too, like. I think we need to uh, have the the chance to add more uh, social and public housing that uh, the government puts forth. I think I think we should uh, investigate 
whether we should be uh, having some free housing and really investing in people, even though it's going to cost us money now. Um, but I think it's, uh, it's an opportunity to set people on the right path and eventually uh, have a big contribution to the economy. Um, and there, and there have been tons of studies that show that the, the biggest solver of homelessness is housing. It's, <laughs> it sounds really simple, but it works when people who are homeless find housing. Um, most of the time it, it eventually solves the problem. And of course, I think there needs to be uh, more supportive housing too for people uh, who have mental health problems and can't just find housing and then get a job and they have, they'll have mental health problems or even, uh, you know, physical problems. Um, but I think uh, what LA and California have to do more of and across the country is find more permanent solutions and less temporary ones. So I think that's, that's what I'd have to say. So in the article, you also mentioned SB 50, which I think you also mentioned when you were answering the question. But what I thought was interesting was one of the biggest arguments that homeowners made against SB 50 was that it was going to negatively impact the character of their neighborhoods. I don't know if you saw this, but I was reading about SB 50 that really for neighborhoods, all it did was allow fourplexes. Fourplexes are relatively small, yet they offer significantly more housing than just one house. I'm pretty sure you could do a fourplex that would still be in the character of the neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, a lot of people bring up the, the character and the dynamic of the neighborhood. Um, if they're talking about the way it looks, I think, well, just suck it up. <laughs> if I have to be completely honest, I think that getting people housed is a lot more important than uh, a couple apartment buildings in a, in a neighborhood. Um, or even fourplexes or duplexes, you know. Um, but if I think, unfortunately, a, a lot of people aren't willing to admit is that they often may not feel comfortable with uh, low-income people and people with mental health issues uh, living in their neighborhood. And I, I think that's, uh, you know, that's a, a fear. But these these people, I mean, they're people. At the end of the day, we have to remember that they're human beings and they have to go somewhere. So, um, and it may, uh, and if we, if we do go for these permanent solutions, which I think um, will really help solve this, this problem that we've created, I think it, it may just as well be in uh, your backyard and may be in mine. So I think we have to come out from a stance that we, we we've got to be more positive about it and we've got to welcome these people into our neighborhoods. Cause I think, uh, most of these people are from the surrounding neighborhoods in general. I found a statistic, and let me find it, in San Francisco. Um, I think it was about 70% uh, of San Francisco's homeless people were housed somewhere in the city where they lost housing before. So, and it's similar, it's a similar statistic from Los Angeles. So these people are coming, are losing housing often for reasons of, um, I think the biggest reasons are poverty, um, uh, lack of affordable housing, unemployment, uh, low wages, um, and sometimes mental, health, mental illness, mental health issues.
but that's uh, actually people were surprised that that's um, not a, a very prevalent cause of it's still overrepresented, but it's still uh, a minority of, of the causes. Um, so yeah, and then uh, I think you mentioned, oh yeah, so then there's also a common argument against it is, well, um, we can't get rid of single family housing because then uh, developers will just use it to uh, bring in luxury housing and uh, condos, which are even less affordable so it's not solving the problem, it's just making it worse. Maybe you're right, but then uh, I think that's a good case that maybe uh, if that happens, maybe the private market can't solve the problem. <laughs> um, so if that happens, I think that's a great argument uh, for the government to step on in and uh, start helping the problem, um, or start solving the problem, I mean. Um, so yeah, I think that's my take. All right. So this next question is specifically about you. So you're, you're in the hot seat right now. I'm game. All right. What are your plans for the future? And do you have any political aspirations? Uh, <laughs> so while I'm going to UCLA next year, um, and I plan to study history, um, and do I have political aspirations? If you'd asked me two to three years ago, I, I would have said, Yes, absolutely. But now, uh, probably not so much. I think politics is, uh, especially like working on campaigns and being a politician, that's a very tough job um, and a very demanding job. And I'd probably like to leave it to other people to do. Um, <laughs> but I definitely can see myself maybe doing something else in public service, like working in governments, uh, maybe something like, you know, urban planning, stuff like that, where you're helping uh, the community, um, or maybe or maybe just completely different stuff too. Like recently, I've been thinking some sometimes about like just being a high school teacher. Um, so yeah, I, I honestly have no idea yet. And I think I'm okay with that. All right. Well, thank you for doing this interview and being my first guest. I truly appreciate it. And Thank you for dealing with all of my newbie questions and all of my stutters and all of my random thoughts. So hopefully I can get better, but thank you for dealing with all the problems as at the moment and during this interview. <laughs> no, thank you very much for having me. Um, I assure you it was no problem at all. Um, and I look forward to hearing the rest of your podcast. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Today's episode was hosted and produced by Jackson Lancer. And to keep up to date about the podcast, follow us on Instagram or Spotify at Pioneering Politicus.